Hi, this is Richard Watts, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Smart Arts, a weekly radio show bringing news, reviews and interviews about the arts. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Thursday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and if you have any questions or feedback, feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website. Now, I don't know if you've ever seen video footage of the Boston Dynamics robot dogs, which look kind of terrifying on one level. They remind me of uh, slam hounds from William S. Gibson science fiction. They look like the kind of things that will come crawling over the rubble at the end of the world with their robotic limbs adjusting uh, for the conditions through which they move. But my first guest for the morning, the artist Agnieszka Pilat, is training these robot dogs to paint as part uh, of, well, and featured at the NGV Triennial. Agnieszka, good morning and thank you for joining us. Good morning, Richard. Now, when did you first decide or, or start to think about the idea of robots creating art? We live in a world in which AI is being used to scrape the internet, uh, steal creative ideas from artists and regurgitate them. But I suspect your creativity goes back away before that. Yeah, well, I'm I'm a portrait painter at heart. That's my background. So I'm interested in power structures in society. So for me, um, addressing technology is a conversation about the power structure. So I first painted a portrait of one of these robot dogs. And then eventually, from the muse, they became an active participant of making art for me. In terms of training a robot to become an active participant, to, to work with you or to work on your behalf to create art, talk us through the process involved. Have you had to have very uh, intense and long conversations with, uh, with programmers, for example, who are, uh, who are helping you realise this ambition and this aim? Uh, yes, absolutely. So um, the ironic kind of part of my work is that working with robotics brought me more to humans because I'm not really at heart, I'm not an engineer. So to really deeply understand how these new technologies work, I had to engage with engineers, which I think is wonderful. So um, in a nutshell, when I first started working with the robot, it's me, it was me learning how to operate it. And um, so the whole everything, the aesthetics of it, it really represents my kind of understanding of how to use the technology. During the triennial, this changed a lot because now the robots, we have three of them for the show, and they're going to be, they're fully automated, which means an autonomous, more than that. So which means they are, they have autonomy moving within the museum space and creating work, and I am kind of out of that, of that loop. So they are they are creating based on my earlier instructions, but they have autonomy how to do it. Okay, there's so many things here I want to unpack, but to begin with the... I don't know, I've read enough science fiction and seen enough science fiction films that giving robots autonomy usually doesn't work out well, but how is it working out in the creative space? Talk to us about the kind of works that they are realising. Sure. So I do think about this technology and still in very nascent stages. So I like to think about the space at the museum as sort of a nursery, a school for robots. And so this is extremely important and at the heart 
of my work because unless we engage actively with artificial intelligence, with these new technologies, we don't have control over it. And I like robotics especially in contrast to artificial intelligence to just purely digital because robotics are a bit kind of like humans, right? Because they have bodies, they exist in space and in time, kind of like us, while AI living in the cloud doesn't body universal uh, has no, it's more like a god, has, knows about us more than we know about ourselves, and it's learning actively online all the time. So I like to underline always that it's so important for us, for humans, to really behave online kindly because AI, like a young child, is watching all the time. I took robots to my studio, so I have kind of agency, what values, what behaviors I teach them. On, on the internet, we all have agency in a different way. Now, when I was up in Darwin uh, on Tuesday, uh, I facilitated the panel about AI and the arts. And one of the things that one of the speakers said was that, uh, uh, I'm trying to remember the exact phrasing here, but uh, he commented about the fact that a lot of us, uh, particularly in the creative world, I'm a writer, for example, and I'm worried that my, I, uh, myself and other writers could lose their jobs because of AI uh, writing very basic, simple articles uh, instead of the nuanced piece of journalism that I would hope to create. But he also spoke about the fact that AI is something that all of us use every day without even thinking about it. The, the algorithm on Netflix or YouTube, which tell, suggests what you could watch next, is actually AI. So AI is a part of our lives. Robots are becoming a part of our daily lives as well, whether it's the, uh, the little cleaning vacuum robot that bounces around your house or um, uh, the, the car assembly line. Robots are there every day. But bringing robots into the world of art is still feels like something relatively new yes and it's very it's very controversial definitely and i'm aware of it i do think that bringing robots is interesting in a sense that it's a very visual representation of artificial intelligence as opposed to uh, AI, again, that is invisible, yet it is in our life so present. Now, in so I think there's an advantage into bringing robotics into the arts yeah. because it really brings to the forefront the conversation and it's very visible, the changes that happening in the world that we are unaware of, perhaps. Now, the other thing that you said earlier, which I wanted to, to circle back around to, was that by learning to work with robots, despite the fact that they are um, a, a form of technology, they are not human, um, the process of learning to work with them, you said, has connected you more deeply with other humans, with other people, because uh, uh, you are not an engineer, as you said. So there is, some, there is a, a beautiful irony there that by focusing on robotic art, you have actually developed greater connections with a, a wider variety of people than you may otherwise have interacted with. Yes, I do feel that quite strongly because technology gives me hope because it does bring minds of the most intelligent people in the world, but they are forced to work in teams. The problems that we are tackling in technology that hopefully will help humanity, like climate change, um, will 
you know, brings again, makes people, forces people to work in collaboration, and uh, that would be brings hope, hope in technology. I'm, I'm hearing my echo a little bit. That's my apologies. Uh, absolutely fine. Now. One of the things that I'm curious about in terms of working with uh, these robot dogs to encourage them to paint, do you see yourself as, I don't know, uh, akin to a pilot in an aeroplane guiding it? Or are the ro do you see the, the robots more as your collaborators? I think they're collaborators now, but also I think of myself in the context of guilds of the Renaissance. So in the Renaissance, masters would take young students and train them how to become masters. So ultimately, I do see the robots perhaps becoming better and what I am doing, but in a sense, in a positive sense, really bringing something positive to, to the culture. So, you know, all great masters had teachers like um, Michelangelo's teacher was uh, Verrocchio, Girandaio taught uh, Da Vinci. So this is not new in human history. And also the content of what the robots are creating, it's a new language. So I like to think that every new civilization creates a language. Any historical context, let's imagine that these works survived. And, you know, hundreds of years from now, intelligence beings, technology, software technology can look at these paintings and think about, oh, these glyphs, this is the first language, and trying to decipher what these early machines were trying to tell us, very much like um, the glyphs in human history were trying to decode what early humans were trying to tell us. I'm speaking with artist Agnieszka Pilat, whose uh, work is being presented as part of the NGV Triennial 2023 at NGV International. <clears throat> excuse me, on St Kilda Road from the 3rd of December until the 7th of April. Agnieszka, do you think the robots will get to a point where they are truly and fully autonomous creatives rather than being programmed by an engineer or rather than, uh, than you working with them to guide them? Do you think they will truly develop their own creative skills and their own creative language given time? Yes, I love this, the question. So, of course, robotics always lags behind AI because there is mechanical engineering that's really so very complex. So I think it also brings actually in more interesting sense questions about what really is creativity. So if robots can do it, if AI can do it, what does it mean for our own creativity? Should, what should we be doing or considering creativity as human beings if the machine can do it so well? I'm certainly intrigued to see the art that these robot dogs create. And I believe you're going to be doing an in-conversation as part of the NGV triennial um, coming up on, what, Sunday the 3rd of December. Yes, I will, and I am excited about questions because, you know, that's what the, about the art with robots. It really creates very interesting conversations, and it brings humanity. And I think art has a bit of a threshold that the general public is more encouraged to enter the conversation, but it's not so techy. It's a little more digestible, I think. Yeah, and also 
for people who are nervous about robots or AI taking their jobs, one of the things that fascinates me too is that artists have always been at the forefront of adapting and exploring the creative potential of new technology, video art being just one example. Video art is now uh, everywhere on screens all around us, but when... Uh, uh, VCRs and home video cameras and so on were first introduced decades ago. It was artists who first began to explore their creative possibilities and certainly it would seem that robots and AI are absolutely no different in that regard. Yes, I agree. We, and I think artists need to engage with new technologies and we need to be early adapters and also early warning signs. So artists we're allowed to practice in our studio on a smaller scale ways that changing humanity. But it's so, so I think that's very profitable to the society in that sense, because, again, this is a small sense before we deploy these technologies. We can test them in a kind of enclosed environment and have the public and really very publicly so, you know, so again, so again, so it's a conversation that everyone is welcome to join in form of art criticism. If you would like to see the robot dogs that Agnieszka Pilat is collaborating with and uh, which are now autonomously creating their own art, uh, head along to the NGV Triennial at NGV International, which, as I said, is running from the 3rd of December until the 7th of April. It is free and there is a free conversation um, uh, happening on Sunday the 3rd of December, 3.45pm in the Great Hall at NGV international in st kilda road for more information just head to ngv.vic.gov.au agnes capilla thank you so much for joining us on the program today thanks richard my pleasure Woo! Ah, that's right triple r now we'll be catching up with the director of sydney festival olivia ansell to talk about her 2024 program but Olivia, good morning and thank you for joining us. Good morning, Richard. Good to be with you. Now, in terms of a festival like Sydney, what's its primary purpose, do you think? Is it to entertain the public? Is it to expose Sydney artists to some of the great art being made around the rest of the country and the rest of the world? Is it to bring inter kind of interstate tourists to Sydney to spend money and book hotel nights? Is it all of these things or is it just to celebrate art in Sydney in summer? Well, um, I would have to say it's all of the above. <laughs> it's, a, it's a super a super broad festival, um, and I couldn't have sort of described it as, as better than you just did. You know, we're there to ignite and animate culture in Sydney in summer for visitors to the city and for Sydney siders to see the, see the city differently, if you like. Um, this year's program deals with themes of water and weaving, so freshwater stories, saltwater stories, tales of Sydney Harbour. I think we have four different major productions happening on um, our water and river systems. We're also talking very much about the weaving of voices, intercultural, intergenerational voices, um, and stories that relate to this land, 55,000 years old, and the weaving of both 1,000 and local and international artists as they sort of tell 
um, so many interesting stories about this land and, and um, you know, and, and the many lands that, that exist across the globe. Um, we do like to entertain. So we've got a huge music program this year. We have Summer Ground, which is our three-day music festival within a festival that kicks off on the January 5 with some fantastic acts, including the Teskey Brothers and Seema Funk, who's the James Brown of Cuba, and, and wonderful artists like Lisa O'Neill, Courtney Barnett, uh, Anushka Shankar, Peter Cat Recording Co. Um, throughout, you know, many of our um, venues that form part of the festival program. We use 59 different venues every January over the four weeks. So um, it is certainly an action-packed summer. Now, in terms of one of the things you just referenced, which is the fact that the festival allows Sydney-siders to see the city differently, one of the things that intrigues me, and I'm sure anybody listening will be intrigued as well if they're interested in the, the history of Sydney, uh, the uh, what was historically known as the Hungry Mile of Walsh Bay, where I believe during the Great Depression people would queue up for, for hours before gates opened to seek work, for example, you're nodding to that with the Thirsty Mile, a celebration of the the working history of the Sydney waterfront. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, festivals really love a precinct. We love that hub where we can anchor and gather together as audiences and artists and converse about work and celebrate art in summer. And so right along Hickson Road, this Walsh Bay precinct, which is the home of places like the Sydney Theatre Company, Bell Shakespeare, the Australian Chamber Orchestra, Sydney Philharmonia Choirs, Barangaroo, the Roslyn Packer Theatre. It's really a cultural district now. But the history of that site in the early 20th century was the Thirsty Mile, the Great Depression, uh, where, you know, maritime workers would go down um, and seek work and were turned away um, during that period. It's also the place in Sydney where so many languages are spoken because of the sheer amount of import and export that would happen on those wharves. And um, in the 1960s and 70s, those wharves were decommissioned and were quite dishevelled and became kind of a bit of a commune for artists to hang out. And that's how, actually, the Sydney Dance Company formed. A bunch of artists got together, including Graham Murphy in the 70s, sort of um, took casual classes and workshops in, in what was sort of more like sheds and, you know, um, many years later, you know, um, the birth of some of our best cultural assets uh, has become. So um, we're making a cheeky nod back to the history of the site, but we're calling the precinct the Thirsty Mile because we're also making a big nod forward to say, what are we thirsty to see change? And so many artists in the zeitgeist right now are talking about hope, are talking about change and what we need to see in the future. And people are making work about that. For example, down at the Thirsty Mile, our festival precinct, Genoa Gila, an extraordinary Torres Strait artist, has made a powerful work with four women from the Torres Strait about the rising sea level. Um, in Arab, her father's homeland. That's making its world premiere at uh, Bangara Dance Theatre in their black box theatre there. Um, we've got um, Smash the Nightcap upstairs for those who want to revel in sort of the late night debauchery and take themselves back to um, the speakeasies in Sydney. Uh, that's happening upstairs. Um, we've got Michael Griffiths in It's a Sin talking about what it was like to grow up as a queer man and how he's thirsty to see greater equality, greater gender equality. Um, and, you know, the, the anthems of, of being a queer young man listening to the Pet Shop Boys and, and many other artists that influenced him. So, you know, between the two wharves, we have um, a spectacular amount of, um, of live performance music, entertainment for children. There's a beautiful clown artist, Tom Mockton, who last year sort of stole the hearts of our audience with a piece titled The Artist. And this year he's got a piece for children called The King of Taking, which is about a, um, 
a patriarchal king who's allergic to anything but walking on red carpet. Um, <laughs> so there's this... <laughs> we've even got it's called Ode to Joy, which is about a homonormative Scot who um, is a bureaucrat, works in lease in Scotland, and decides to go with a few of his friends to um, Bergheim in Berlin and actually manages to get into that very exclusive club. And um, the night sort of unfolds in a range of different sort of hysterical ways and that's um, also proving to be very popular so really like um, nodding to what we're thirsty to see change sitting well into the zeitgeist of contemporary conversation and making lots of cheeky nods back to our past as well. Now in terms of cultural visitation to Sydney Festival I'm sure plenty of Melbournians have already started to look at the program and think about what they want to see for, for some of them they'll already know that Walsh Bay Arts Precinct for example, uh, that's hosting uh, the Thirsty Mile. But I suspect they'll also be intrigued to think about even older histories of Sydney as well. Talk to us about First Nations representation in the 2024 Sydney Festival program. Absolutely. So Jake Nash, who's the curator of the Blackout program, has put together a really powerful lineup of works. And I would say in the the Blackout program, there's there's several don't misses. Uh, Vigil the Future is a an event that was um well vigil was initiated by my predecessor wesley enoch it happens on the 25th of january every year it's a moment for reflection and obviously coming out past um the recent referendum uh this year's vigil is more important than ever for that moment of reflection and jake nash and stephen page the wonderful stephen page have curated a song cycle with spin effects gum this extraordinary choir of young women from far north queensland who will perform a series of songs in language and a specially commissioned song on this um, uh, beautiful design stage that Jake has put together that's happening on Stargazer Lawn up at Barangaroo, which is at the end of the Thirsty Mile. And um, Jake and Stephen have been collaborating with young Indigenous youth to, who have put forward words around their hopes for the future, what they want to see change. And these words will be sent up into the sky as a drone display and married to the various songs that the Spinifex Gum Choir are singing. Beautifully lit. This is a free event, a major outdoor free event on the 25th of January. We also have, as part of the Blackout program, two major new Australian works, Titters, written by playwright Anita Hayes, a wonderful Wiradjuri playwright, and that's a play about um, about women, about sisterhood and solidarity and sticking together. Um, it, 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 it's full of humour and heartbreak and joy and, and the many challenges that come with um, being a woman. And, you know, um, and uh, the other play is Big Name No Blankets, which is a brand-new world premiere by our Bidgeri Theatre Company, and that's the story of the Warumpi Band and their incredible rise to fame from Papania to the global rock and roll stages around the world in the 80s. And it, and it specifically follows um, the brothers, Sammy and George Butcher, um, and, and their journey through that musical era. And it's been co-conceived by um, Sammy Butcher's granddaughter, Anya Butcher, and co-directed by the wonderful Rachel Mazza. And I want to also mention another piece titled Mutiara by Marageku, which is a dance theatre company. And Dahlia Pigram, who's the co-artistic director... And, and fellow collaborators made a work about the pearl diving industry in Broome, specifically what went on in the late 1800s and the early 1900s, which was um, um, a quite unethical practice when it came to sort of forcing migrants from Malaysia 
an Indonesia and uh, local Aboriginal community to go diving for pearl shells in perilous conditions. And it's sort of exposing those stories for what they were in a very powerful dance theatre piece. I had the pleasure of seeing the um, preview season of that in Broome uh, about six weeks ago, and we're thrilled to be supporting that work to make its Sydney premiere. I I adore Marageku's work. I think they're one of our most significant mm. companies, so the opportunity to see a new work from Marageku uh, certainly... Uh, uh, enormously appealing. And speaking of dance works, there's a, a new work in the program by the Northern Queensland company Dance North as well. Yes, that's uh, titled Wayfinder, and that's actually uh, playing at a brand new performing arts centre here in Sydney called the Pavilion Performing Arts Centre. Wayfinder is a collaboration with contemporary music act Hiatus Coyote. Uh, Kyle Page um, and Amber Page are doing some fantastic work with Dance North. They're touring all around the world. This is an extraordinary dance collaboration. Uh, when we speak of weaving in the program, you can imagine this uh, enormous set design. It's like this um, material fabric knotted all the way to the grid of the theatre and the dancers climb up and down this um, sort of knotted piece of uh, multicoloured material. It's, it's kind of got these real tones of sort of um, we are the future, we are Gen X, this is how we dance, this is how we move, this is how our energy exchanges, but also the movement and the fluidity and freedom has for me, like tonal notes of that kind of like hippie movement of the 70s, if you like. Um, uh, they, they, the liberation of this dance company when put with um, uh, Hiatus Coyote is really something to behold. So we're thrilled to have that in the program as well. Now, there's also um, a Swedish uh, company represented. I'm going to struggle with their name, but a Swedish dance company. Um, can you t pronounce their name for me just so I don't stuff it up live on air? Absolutely, it's Gothenburg Opera Dance Company. It's a, oh, you've got to use the goth in the Gothenburg uh, <laughs> from my um, from my research. Now they are one of the world's best dance companies, and they've never been to Australia. So this is an Australian exclusive. The dancers are absolutely divine under the artistic direction of Katrin Hall. Uh, there's actually two Australian dancers in the company too. But what we're bringing you is a double bill. So a work by Damien Gillet, who's an extraordinary Belgian choreographer. This work is called Skid. It's set on this enormous white mountain, like a 32 degrees verticality. It sort of looks like a Winter Olympic ski ramp that we're installing into the Ros Packer. And, and it's about the fragility of humanity and the planet. And these dancers sort of glide and slide up and down this mountain, hold on to each other and then until their grip absolutely has to let go and they slide and get sucked into the orchestra pit and run around and do it again. And the second piece is by another wonderful choreographer, Sharon Ayal, um, who's a, a Paris-based choreographer who's made a work called Saba with DJ Ori Lichtik. And that is about um, just the clubbing on the dance floor and that sort of sinuous exchange of energy and that pulsating heartbeat. So two very different contrasting works and both of them exclusive only in Sydney. So um, another good reason uh, to come up or come down or come across to now, us in January. Speaking of that exchange of energy, Olivia, I know that one of the, the, the great values of 
an international arts festival like Sydney Festival, which uh, next year is running from Friday the 5th to Sunday the 28th of January, is the, the, the exchange that happens between artists, the conversations that happen between artists, which can spur on work, whether that's Australian artists being inspired by international artists or artists dis- uh, meeting and deciding to collaborate and so forth. One of the works in the festival by the Irish company Broken Talkers, created together with Adrian Truscott, grew out of such a conversation, I believe, at the Edinburgh Fringe many years ago, or several years ago at least. It's a deliciously provocative and clever work, which I saw at Rising in Melbourne earlier this year as well. Um, I suspect Sydney audiences will also fall in love with it. Oh, absolutely. I I had the pleasure, actually, of seeing that in Edinburgh, too. And then I I got to see it again in Melbourne. And um, that is a bit of a smashing down of the patriarchy, if if you've never seen one before. Uh, And it it just, it's so clever. It's sort of whip speed, these two talk show hosts. Um, you know, d- discussing privilege um, and, and, and acknowledging their own privilege and their own biases in that conversation. And um, I don't want to spoil the ending, but I thought that the way that it finishes was <laughs> just a spectacular rhetoric of the satire of the piece. But um, masterclasses that do not miss. And in terms of how artists come together, every Sunday night during the festival, we have artist parties. And this year, they'll be down at the Thirsty Mile in our Moonshine Bar where we have an extraordinary visual artwork by British artist Michael Shaw. Um, And the public are welcome to come down on a Sunday night as well. I mean, it's our festival bar. You're all welcome. And what I love is I find out about all these collaborations that go on from artists meeting in the festival bar. Last year, the wonderful James Thierry, the grandson of Charlie Chaplin, was off collaborating with uh, Spanish choreographer Sarah Barras. Um, and, and Lucky Lati, who's a, is a wonderful um, uh, African-Australian choreographer, they all got together on the side. One was off at the hotel. They went up to the green room and started collaborating. Um, I, I love to hear all of these conversations that spin off just from a festival, bringing artists together and having these, you know, impromptu meets. It's just great. I'm speaking with Olivia Ansell, who's the festival director of Sydney Festival, the festival itself running from Friday the 5th to Sunday the 28th of January 2024. Full details at www.sydneyfestival.org.au. Olivia, let's finish uh, by speaking perhaps briefly about family programming, because I'm sure there are plenty of cultural tourists out there who have little ones with them and are thinking, what can the kids see this year? Oh, absolutely. And um, with a two-and-a-half-year-old myself, this, this area of programming I'm very passionate about. Um, in terms of three offerings, don't miss the beautiful Dreamtime story, How the Birds Got Their Colours. That's a, a circus work by Arc Circus in collaboration with uh, Yugambeh elder Luther Cora. Um, it's just a spectacular circus piece for 30 minutes set on our beaches and parks around Sydney. So that's playing... Uh, at Cronulla, Bondi, Manly, Freshwater, the Botanic Gardens in the CBD, Tumbalong Park, Darling Harbour and Parramatta at Parramatta Square in the Darug Circle. We are unleashing four seagulls that are 4.2 metres high all across the city. That's um, snuff puppets from Melbourne uh, making a splash and stealing people's fish and chips. They'll be roaming around the city. In terms of the ticketed program, there's a beautiful Cambodian circus called White Gold that I've had my eye on for many years. They're from Sam Reap. They've just played the New Victory Theatre in New York. They're coming direct to us. That's a beautiful circus show for the whole family. And uh, A Bucket Full of Beetles is a beautiful 
puppetry show by Paper Moon Theatre Company from Indonesia. It's the story of a young boy. It's just gorgeous, the puppets and the bugs. That's on at um, the Seymour Centre where we have a whole Southeast Asian bazaar happening in the courtyard to support and um, celebrate our Cambodian circus and our Indonesian theatre company. So, look, um, and don't miss Tom Mockton, the, uh, the, the royally funny patriarchal king who's allergic to red carpet. That is also an absolute hit. Um, so that's one for the um, one to book and put in the cart for sure. Check out sydneyfestival.org.au for full program details. Book tickets, book flights, book a hotel room for a night or two or crash on a friend's couch. But uh, sounds like there's a lot of really strong work in the program. Olivia Ansell is the Festival Director of Sydney Festival. Olivia, it's been a pleasure chatting. Thanks for your time. Thanks for having me on. Bye, Richard. Triple R on FM, digital, online and via the app. Now, though, we're going to talk about a new exhibition at ACME uh, at Federation Square, which is something I'm, I'm particularly intrigued by this exhibition, partially because of the name of the collective whose work it is presenting. They're called Marshmallow Laser Feast. How can you go past something like that? But also because it's, in a way, I think the works are reflecting on one of the perhaps the great tragedies of what it means to be human in that we disconnect ourselves far too often from the natural world. We don't think about the connections between us and the environment, particularly in a kind of, uh, in a kind of, industrialised Western culture where nature is something you see, um, I don't know, at Melbourne Museum. They have trees in a gallery and you can go and look at them as opposed to going out into nature and hugging a tree and connecting with the world. It's a strange way that we live. So uh, I'm joined in the studio by Urson Han Urson, who's uh, an artist and one of the directors of uh, the London-based collective Marshmallow Laser Feast, to talk about a new exhibition of their work, the first time that the collective's work has been presented in Melbourne. Works of nature, it's uh, five works altogether. But, uh, Urson, welcome to Melbourne and welcome to Triple R. Thank you. Thank you. It's great to be here. So have I done the exhibition justice in terms of that reflection about the theme of connecting with the world? Indeed. That is um, the, 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 the main topic that we wanted to highlight. And as a line of inquiry, works of nature very integral to our practices as we explore and find new ways of defining how we can express this interconnectedness through the work we do. Um, it just evolves and changes, but often it's less of an innovation or invention. It is actually remembering, looking at the, the ways in which we've related to nature or throughout the history, in, in so many cultures globally, we had those ways. And somehow down the line of evolution, somewhere in the Enlightenment, we just put ourselves on top of that pyramid of being, and then now the, the disconnect occurred. The idea of interbeing is 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 the running thread in the in the in the entire exhibition and in those five um, pieces of experiential works that you can experience there. Um, and the this idea of every breath connects you to a tree, every other breath connects you to the oceans, every other breath, every third breath, connects you to the, 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 these tiny, tiny creatures that produce oxygen for the atmosphere. It, it's a very, very simple concept when we think about it, right? So the, the, 
the, the, the beauty of the exhibition that we worked with the ACME's curatorial team was very early on, we agreed upon that the breath takes the front seat and drives us from beginning to end of the exhibition. And and obviously the, the, the works themselves, they all are interlinked in that respect, even though they've been created for different purposes and different times. One of them um, extended and adopted for specifically for this exhibition, which we are really excited for. And um, the running thread of the exhibition is a breath and you start um, just reminding yourself with the breath uh, at the beginning of the exhibition, uh, it, it says it starts with breath and uh, you start breathing and then go into breathing meditation uh, with angelic voice of Kate Blanchett. She gracefully lended her voice to us. Uh, we worked with Terence Malick and, and Ed, Edward Pressman to kind of create the, the, the piece that we call Evolver. And now it's kind of deconstructed and, and divided into parts for a collective experience. But what sets the tone is that 10 minutes of coming back to your body and exploring a single breath into a human ecosystem. You literally dive back into your own body by noticing every inch and follow that oxygenated blood circulating and arriving at every cell in your body. And when you, when you actually visualize that idea, you ask that question, who's breathing who? It's this tiny cell is just breathing you. You are breathing the forest. And hopefully that's the... That's the overarching idea that we would like to kind of uh, leave people with. It's like, who's breathing who? How interconnected we are. It's also uh, in an era and an age where the experiential in an exhibition is often focused on the Instagrammable. Uh, instead of uh, having an experience which is something that can be quickly photographed, shared online to go, oh, look at this cool thing. This is an exhibition which is in it's almost the opposite. It's encouraging people to be grounded, to be in the moment, to think about themselves and their place in the world, rather than just to rush through uh, in order to experience the next highlight and the highlight after that. Um, that's 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 true. That's being said, we 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 pay uh, utmost attention to to create an experiential journey. Obviously, the the visual component of every piece is very much the driving factor, but that doesn't discount all the other elements. Which you know, the way we live our lives, often constructing reality based on all the sensory stimuli. So the visual component is one an important one, but all the others are also very powerful. So we've been trying to kind of tailor for. Those those ones and in in today's attention economy, uh, you know, I, I don't think it's mutually um, exclusive to have both, you know, a nice Instagrammable moment in your life where you can, you know, put a marker and remind yourself that you've had that experience. But equally, it's definitely not just about holding your phone uh, on your face and, and walking through this space. It's genuinely all about being able to tune back into your body, ground yourself in the space and, you know, linger with some of those uh, running thoughts throughout the space. And we've got this wonderful uh, poetry from Daisy Lafarge, um, who is a magnificent poet. Uh, we worked with her back in 2018, where we interviewed a series of scientists, uh, Stephen Harding, Kate Field, Marilyn Sheldrake, David Abraham, and asking different questions, you know, the, the evolution of um, uh, human entanglement, the, 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 the plant and 
and human relationship and looking at the, the mycology and, and how mycelium distributes carbon under soil. So very simple questions and receiving this very juicy scientific facts. We gave all that to Daisy. And she came back with a beautiful poetry that is extremely accessible, grounded in science and truth, but sounds very spiritual at the same time. And Akmi's uh, uh, Matt McMillan did an incredible job just untangling some of those, uh, working with the curatorial team to spread that word across the gallery. So you've got moments of you know watching something in awe or you know, tuning into the visualizations of those trees or the human lungs, but then pausing for a second to read a piece of poetry that links the previous work to the next one. So it's a very uh, multisensory experience to go through that would hopefully, you know, you won't have too much time to go back to your phone anyway, apart from leaving few markers and, and you know, for you to remember what you had, uh, then actually running around uh, with a selfie stick. Yeah. Now, if, if we're talking about being grounded, let's talk about one of the specific works, Sanctuary of the Unseen Forest. It's a, a five metre tall video work of uh, a tree in the Amazon. Uh, now, the idea of a video of a tree, I can already hear some people going, well, that doesn't sound very exciting. But can it talk to us about what people will see and experience and also the the behind the scenes of the creation of this video. Sure, uh, you are so right. Uh, rather than looking at a video of a tree, I may as well just go to the park. You've got incredible trees: the horn pines, the the Tasmanian redwoods, the eucalyptus all around us here. So we we often approach this and call it the world beyond the limits of human senses, uh, meaning you know you can only see so much. You, three spectrum of colors that is available to our eyes, and we can only hear certain frequencies in spectrum. So there is a reality that is beyond our perception, and we use instruments, and technology for our case is that instrument to, to be able to see beyond the objects, see through things and hear through things. Uh, Sanctuary of the Unseen Forest revolves around a Saba pentandra tree. It's also called Kapok in the West. It's one of the, the most important kind of pioneer uh, keystone species that they are emergent. So they grow really large and really, um, and it's really complex. They host number of species in and on them. So they've been inspiring, you know, capturing imagination of, of many indigenous people all around the world, wherever they grew, and, and still is today, you know, living in Amazon, you still need to navigate through this dense jungle and your lampposts are these trees. Uh, but what's beyond it is they take, you know, somewhere around 800 liters water a day from ground all the way to the clouds and you know the amazon rainforest creates a water a body of water larger than the river itself just above the, the tree line and they all coming from these trees so this invisible part of reality is not available to us so the piece is showing you the this reciprocal exchange where you've got the carbon is flowing down into the soil gets distributed by the mycelium so you can actually see this you know tr transparent soil line with all its vibrancy and w obviously the, the importance of you know we wanted to set the scene with this tree just to see overcome plant blindness and so we can see beyond and see the animism the hidden animism inside of these uh, incredible beings and and also relate to this cardiovascular system that sustains not just themselves but the entire life on earth 
and the fact that then the the video work draws you into essentially the breath of the forest uh, and the 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 heartbeat of the tree itself with water moving through uh, through uh, cells and so forth then flows on beautifully to uh, the the work um, evolver. Uh, it's the one I'm thinking of, which uh, this is the one that uh, Kate Blanchett narrates, uh, and the idea of kind of oxygen flowing through the body. Yeah, indeed. Uh, so the, the first one it reminds you this pulse, the, the hidden pulse that, that sustains life on Earth. And the second part is you follow a single breath into a human ecosystem. And funnily enough, evolution knows its trick, uh, finding ways of or shortcuts or, or, or really well working methods to manifest its working structures. In Evolver, we expose and explore human as a giant ecosystem where you can see the, the lungs, an upside down lung that looks very much like a tree. As you follow this this journey of breath into the into the human single cell, you realize single cell is also breathing very much like the lungs and you are you know left with the question who's breathing who. And when because you started from the tree into a human, the boundary between self and the other kind of blurs. And this is the, the idea, and you arrive at the, the breathing cell after, you know, Evolver is number of pieces uh, um, set across gallery with number of uh, immersive settings. So the first one is journey of breath, and then you arrive at the, the breathing cell, which is a, a giant ceiling structure uh, projected on where you lie on your back and you watch a single cell washing over your head as it takes its first breath. And that is that is just to spark that, that question, basically. And then we, we continue. Yeah. Um, and that idea of, of breath and oxygen throwing, flowing through the body is then also explored when uh, another series of works, which are, uh, they're not video works in this case, they're static images, digital images nonetheless, but uh, uh, the tides within us, so it like each image showing kind of the spread of oxygen through the body. Yeah, indeed, it's it's also the the same line of inquiry, trying to make the invisible visible. Where if you were to remove everything from a human body and leave only the oxygen inside, what would you end up with? It's like what kind of shape it would create. That's the the exploration that we did with tides within us, looking at the same oxygen that connects us to the trees. To, to human, you know, single cell and all the other species that live on and beyond soil um, is is somehow that oxygen molecule. So if you were to remove the skin, remove the bones, and, and, and you look at this, you know, flow of oxygen using human as a template, those are the prints. And it's, it's a bit of a, um, we wanted to also create this like cavernous, sanctuary-like space that is very calm and, and it's got its own soundscape. We've got a, a magnificent collaborator who came with us and just nurtured the, the, the soundscape to, to create these spaces, James Bully, the composer and, and our long-term collaborator. So when you go inside, the space feels much larger than itself through the, the rever reverberation of this soundscape. So you can have a moment of reflection. Uh, this is somewhere in the middle of the experience. So allowing people to um, kind of have a little moment to sit down and, 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 and explore and reflect back on before they continue the rest of the experience is really, really important. 
I'm speaking with Urson Hahn. Urson, uh, part of the collective Marshmallow Laser Feast, whose collection of works, Works of Nature, are showing at ACME from today, the 23rd of November, through until the 14th of April. And you can go to acme.net.au for more information. Urson, in terms of what you want to achieve with this collection of work, um, yes, it's an aesthetic experience, but are you hoping that once, as after people have experienced the exhibition, after they've breathed, they've meditated, they've watched the and, and felt the work, are you hoping that it will, even if only temporarily, change the way they see the world? I mean, that's... That's that's just enough, exactly. Uh, one aim is we only care for what we love and that always starts with relating to those beings and being able to spark that curiosity that we can relate to much larger body beyond ourselves probably allows us to care for it. And even if we overcome all the, the struggles and problems that the climate change will be imposing on us, we still need to remind ourselves within this large body of the, the world. So we still need to know we can solve some of those things. And obviously, this is definitely not the only solution. The grassroots movement and the environmental movement will help and elevate the, the issue, and, you know, fill the gap, accelerate and bring solution by changing the policies. But equally, the emotional entanglement that it requires probably will be through arts and culture. And hopefully this will leave a, a dent or, you know, spark the curiosity in that respect. And, you know, again, it doesn't matter what happens in that gallery. What really matters when you walk outside of that gallery, would you see that vibrancy of life in that tree in the corner, in one of the Huan Pines or one of the Tasmanian Redwoods or one of the, the, the Managam trees? Then I think it's 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 coming closer to the, the the aim of or coming closer to what we want to accomplish. Marshmallow Laser Feast Works of Nature is showing at ACME at Federation Square from today through until the 14th of April. Go to acme.net.au for details. I've been chatting with one of the members of Marshmallow Laser Feast, Urson Han Urson. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Triple R's Smart Arts, a weekly radio show bringing news, reviews and interviews about the arts, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Thursday. Hope you enjoy the podcast. And if you have any questions or feedback, feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website. <laughs>